0: Hello and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, uh, an ostensibly monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Sorry about the couple-month break there. I guess I just kind of needed it to recharge. And I'm excited to be back for a lot of reasons. One of them is that this month's story, Ogres of East Africa by Sophia Samatar. I've been describing this story as, quote, my favorite short story for several years now, ever since I first read it. I think it was in a year's best or something that I first read it. And I knew I wanted to run this story even before uh, well, before I even recorded the first episode of this podcast. And it's actually the reason that I realized that I didn't want this podcast to be exclusively fiction by anarchist authors or about anarchist struggle or protagonists but instead kind of anything that's sort of a Anti-capitalist or anti-state or anti-colonial struggle could certainly qualify uh, because basically any criteria by which this story wouldn't be appropriate for an anarchist podcast is a shitty criteria because this story is again quote my favorite short story of all time. Um, I hope you like it too. It has everything that I like about fiction. It has um, a strange structure. It has mythology. It has anti-colonialism. And it's, it's also fun in a way that I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be. And so I asked Sophia if, uh, if she'd be okay with being on this podcast, and I don't actually know how she identifies politically, but I told her you know what the show is about, and she was excited to be on it, and I'm excited to run her story. And I'm also really excited for you all to hear the interview that I did with her that follows the story in which she talks about a lot of things that are dear to my heart, like the social construction of monstrosity and how fiction can help shape cultural and political change. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Just as a reminder, I pay for this podcast out of my own pocket. I pay the authors and the voice actors. So if you'd like to help support this podcast and or me, um, you can follow me and subscribe to me. You can give me money on Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash margaretkilljoy. And that is the single best way to help this podcast keep happening, because one of the reasons I often have to drop it is because I often have to focus on things that make me money, or things that don't cost me money, like this podcast does. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another one of those podcasts.
1: Where did you get this?
0: Your friendly neighborhood anarchist.
2: Oh, wow! more
0: of an anarchist
1: militant. people involved in social struggles than everybody else you know? people have been waiting for some content. radio show
0: the final straw and I'm alone getting off goodness the final straw radio.noblogs.org if you're listening you are the resistance.
1: Ogres of East Africa by Sophia Samatar. Read by Derek Johnson. This story was first published by Uncanny Magazine in 2016. Cataloged by Alibai M. Musaji of Mombasa, February 1907. 1. A pool, a pool, a male ogre of the Great Lakes region, a melancholy character, he eats crickets to sweeten his voice, his house burned down with all of his children inside, his enemy is the hare. My informant, a woman of the Highlands who calls herself only Mary, adds that a pool, a pool can be heard on windy nights crying for his lost progeny. She claims that he has been sighted far from his native country, even on the coast, and that an Arab trader once shot and wounded him from the battlements of Fort Jesus. It happened in a famine year, the year of fever. A great deal of research would be required in order to match this year, when according to Mary, the cattle perished in droves to one of the years of our Lord, by which my employer reckons the passage of time, I append this note, therefore in fine print and in the margins. Always read the fine print, dolly By my employer reminds me when I draw up his contracts. He is unable to read it himself, his eyes are not good. The African sun has spoilt them, Alibi. Apool a pool, Mary says, bears a festering sore where the bullet pierced him. He's allergic to lead. two. Bati a grave dweller from the environs of the ancient capital of Kush. The Bati possesses a skeletal figure and a morbid sense of humor. Its great pleasure is to impersonate human beings. If your dearest friend wears a cloak and claims to suffer from a cold, he may be a Bati in disguise. Mary arrives every day precisely at the second hour after dawn. I am curious about this reserved and encyclopaedic woman. It amuses me to write these reflections concerning her in the margins of the catalogue I am composing for my employer. He will think this writing fly-tracks or smudges from my dirty hands. He persists in his opinion that I am always dirty. As I write, I see Mary before me as she presents herself each morning, in her calico dress, seated on an overturned crate. I believe she is not very old, though she must be several years older than I. But I am very young. Too young to walk like an old man, ollie by, Show some spirit, ha! As she talks, she works at a bit of scarlet thread, plaiting something, perhaps a necklace. The tips of her fingers seem permanently stained with color. Where did you learn so much about ogres, Mary? Anyone may learn. You need only listen. What is your full name? She stops plating and looks up. Her eyes drop their veil of calm and flash at me in annoyance, in warning. I told you, she says, Mary, only Mary. 3. Dig Deer A female ogre of Somaliland, her name means long ear. She is described as a large, heavy woman, a very fast runner. One of her ears is said to be much longer than the other. In fact, so long that it trails upon the ground. With this ear, she can hear her enemies approaching from a great distance. She lives in a ruined hovel with her daughter. The daughter is beautiful and would like to be married. Eventually, she will murder Degdere by filling her ear with boiling water. My employer is so pleased with the information we have received from Mary that he has decided to camp here for another week. Milk her, Alibi, he says, leering. Eh? Squeeze her. Get as much out of her as you can. Ha ha. My employer always shouts as the report of his gun has made him rather deaf. In the evenings, he invites me into his tent, where, closed in by walls, a roof, and a floor of Willesden canvas, I am afforded a brief respite from the mosquitoes. A lamp hangs from the central pole, and beneath it, my employer sits, with his legs stretched out and his red hands crossed on his stomach. "'Very good, Ali Bai,' he says. "'Excellent!' Having shot every type of animal in the Protectorate, he is now determined to try his hand at Ogre. I will be required to record his skills as I keep track of all his accounts. It would be damn fine, he opines, to acquire the ear of Degdere. Mary tells me that one day, Degdere's daughter, racked with remorse, will walk into the sea and give herself up to the sharks. 4. Emu Emu transports his victims across a vast body of water in a ferry boat. His country, which lies on the other side, is inaccessible to all creatures save ogres and weaver birds. If you are trapped there, your only recourse is to beg the weaver birds for sticks. You will need seven sticks in order to get away. The first two sticks will allow you to turn yourself into a stone, thereby escaping notice. The remaining five sticks enable the following transformations thorns, a pit, darkness, sand, a river. Stand up straight, Alibi. Look lively, man. My employer is of the opinion that I do not show a young man's proper spirit. This, he tells me, is a racial defect and therefore not my fault. But I may improve myself by following his example. My employer thrusts out his chest. Look, alibi. he says that if I walk about stooped over like a dotard, people will get the impression that I am shiftless and craven, and this will quite naturally make them want to kick me. He himself has kicked me on occasion. It is true that my back is often stiff, and I find it difficult to extend my limbs to their full length. Perhaps, as my employer suspects, I am growing old before my time. These nights of full moon are so bright I can see my shadow on the grass. It writhes like a snake when I make an effort to straighten my back. 5. Katanda Baliko While most ogres are large, Katanda Baliko is small, the size of a child. He arrives with a sound of galloping just as the flood is ready. There is sunshine for you, he cries. This causes everyone to faint, and Katanda Baliko devours the flood at his leisure. Katanda Baliko cannot himself be cooked, cut up and boiled. He knits himself back together and bounces out of the pot. Those who attempt to cook and eat him may eat their own wives by mistake. When not tormenting human beings, he prefers to dwell among cliffs. I myself prefer to dwell in Mombasa at the back of my uncle's shop, uh, Musaji and company. I cannot uh, pretend to enjoy nights spent in the open under what my employer calls the splendor of the African sky. Mosquitoes whine and something probably a dangerous animal rustles in the grass. The Somali cook and headman sit up late exchanging stories while the Kavirondo porters sleep in a car- constructed of baggage. I am uncomfortable, but at least I am not lonely. My employer is pleased to think that I suffer terribly from loneliness. It's no picnic for you, eh, ali He thinks me too prejudiced to tolerate the society of the porters and too frightened to go near the Somalis, who, to his mind, being devout Sunnis, must be plotting the removal of my Shia head. In fact, we all pray together. We are tired and far from home. We are here for money. And when we talk, we talk about money. We can discuss calculations for hours. What we expect to buy, where we expect to invest. Our languages are different, but all of us count in Swahili. 6. Kibuji, a male ogre who haunts the foothills of Mount Kenya. He carries machetes, knives, hoes, and other objects made of metal. If you could manage to make a cut in his little finger, all the people he has devoured will come streaming out. Mary has had, I suspect, a mission education. This would explain the name and the calico dress. Such an education is nothing to be ashamed of. Why, then, did she stand up in such a rage when I inquired about it? Mary's rage is cold. She kept her voice low. I have told you not to ask me these types of questions. I have only come to tell you about ogres. Give me the money. She held out her hand, and I doled out her daily fee in rupees, although she had not stayed for the agreed amount of time. She seized the money and secreted it in her dress. Her contempt burned me. My hands trembled as I wrote her fee in my record book. No questions, she repeated, seething with anger. If I went to a mission school, I'd burn it down. I have always been a free woman. I was silent, although I might have reminded her that we are both my employer's servants. Like me, she has come here for money. I watched her stride off down the path to the village. At a certain distance, she began to waver gently in the sun. My face still burns from this thing of her regard. Before she left, I felt compelled to inform her that, although my father was born at Karachi, I was born at Mombasa. I, too, am an African. Mary's mouth twisted. So is Kibuji, she said. 7. Kipti-Bongurian A fearsome yet curiously domestic ogre of the Rift Valley. He collects human skulls, which he once used to decorate his spacious dwelling. He made the skulls so clean, it is said, and arranged them so prettily that from a distance his house resembled a palace of salt. His human wife bore him two sons, one which looked human like its mother and one called Kip Tegan, which resembled its father. When the wife was rescued by her human kin, her human looking Child was also saved, but Kiptegan was burnt alive. I am pleased to say that Mary returned this morning perfectly calm and apparently resolved to forget our quarrel. She tells me that Kiptegan's brother will never be able to forget the screams of his sibling perishing in the flames. The mother, too, is scarred by the loss, she had to be held back where she would have dashed into the fire to rescue her ogre child. This information does not seem appropriate for my employer's catalog. Still, I find myself adding it into the margins. There is a strange pleasure in this writing and not writing, these letters that hang between Revelation and Oblivion. If my employer discovered these notes, he would call them impudence, cunning, a trick. What would I say in my defense? Sir, I was unable to tell you. Sir, I was unable to speak of the weeping mother of Kiptegan. He would laugh. He believes that all words are found in his language. I ask myself if there are words contained in Mary's margins. Stories of ogres she cannot tell to me. Kipti bon she says, is homeless now. A modern creature, he roams the protectorate, clinging to the undersides of trains. 8. Kisirumu. Kis. Iremu, dwells on the shores of Lake Albert. Bathed, dressed in bark cloth, carrying his bow and arrows, he glitters like a bridegroom. His purpose is to trick gullible young women. He will be betrayed by song. He will die in a pit pierced by spears. In the evening, under the light of the lamp, I read the day's inventory from my record book, informing my employer of precisely what has been spent and eaten. As a representative of Musaji and Company, Superior Traders, Stevedores, and Duboshes, I am responsible for ensuring that nothing has been stolen. My employer stretches, closes his eyes and smiles as I inform him of the amount of sugar, coffee and tea in his possession. Tinned bacon, tinned milk, oat porridge, salt, ghee, the dates, he reminds me, are strictly for the Somalis who grow sullen in the absence of this treat. My employer is full of opinions. Somalis, he tells me, are an excitable nation. Don't offend them, alibai. <laughs> The cavirando, by contrast, are merry and tractable, excellent for manual work. My own people are Cowardly but clever at figures. There is nothing, he tells me, more odious than a German. However, their women are seductive. And they make the world's most beautiful music. My employer sings me a German song. He sounds like a buffalo in distress. Afterward, he makes me read to him from the Bible. He believes I will find this painful. Heresy, alibi. (laughs) Ha! You'll have to scrub your mouth out, eh? Extra ablutions? Fortunately, God does not share his prejudices. I read, There were giants in the earth in those days. I read, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron." 9. Cognac Cognac is a hunter. His bulging eyes can perceive movement far across the plains. Human beings are his prey. He runs with great loping strides, kills, sleeps underneath the boughs of a leafy tree. His favorite question is, mother, whose footprints are these? Mary tells me that Cognac passed through her village in the year of amber the whirlwind of his running loosened the roofs a wise woman had predicted his arrival and the young men including mary's brother had set up a net between trees to catch him but cognac only laughed and tore down the net and disappeared with the sound of thunder he is now mary believes in the region of eldoret She tells me that her brother and the other young men who devised the trap have not been seen since the disappearance of Cognac. Mary's gaze is peculiar. It draws me in. I find it strange that, just a few days ago, I described her as a cold person. When she tells me of her brother, she winds her scarlet thread so tightly about her finger, I am afraid she will cut it off. 10. Mbiti Mbiti hides in the berry bushes. When you reach in, she says, Oh, don't pluck my eye out, she asks you. Shall I eat you, or shall I make you my child? You agree to become Mbiti's child. She pricks you with a needle. She's betrayed by the cowrie shell at the end of her tail. My brother, Mary says. She describes the forest. She says we will go there to hunt ogres. Her face is filled with a subdued yet urgent glow. I find myself leaning closer to her. The sounds of the others, their voices, the smack of an axe into wood, recede until they are thin as the buzzing of flies. The world is composed of Mary and myself, and the sky about Mary, and the trees about Mary. She asks me if I understand what she is saying. She tells me about her brother in the forest. I realize that the glow she exudes comes not from some supernatural power, but from fear. She speaks to me carefully as if to a child. She gives me a bundle of scarlet threads. She says when the child goes into the forest, it wears a red necklace And when the ogre sees the necklace, it spares the child, she says. I think you and my brother are exactly the same age. My voice is reduced to a whisper. What of Mbiti? Mary gives me a deep glance, fiercely bright. She says Mbiti is lucky. She has not been caught. Until she is caught, she will be one of the guardians of the forest. Mbiti is always an ogre, and always the sister of ogres. 11. Ntem Elua Ntem Elua, a newborn baby, already has teeth. He sings. Draw near, little pot. Draw near, little spoon. He replaces the meat in the pot with balls of dried dung. Filthy and clever, he crawls into a cow's anus to hide in its stomach. Netem Elua is weak, and he lives by fear, which is a supernatural power. He rides a hyena. His back will never be quite straight, but this signifies little to him, for he can still stretch his limbs with pleasure. The only way to escape him is to abandon his country. Tomorrow, we depart. I am to give the red necklaces only to those I trust. You know them, Mary explained, as I know you. Do you know me? I asked, moved and surprised. She smiled. It is easy to know someone in a week. You need only listen. Two paths lie before me now. One leads to the forest, the other leads home. How easily... I might return to Mombasa. I could steal some food and rupees and begin walking. I have a letter of contract affirming that I am employed and not a vagrant. How simple to claim that my employer has dispatched me back to the coast to order supplies or to Abyssinia to purchase donkeys. But these scarlet threads burn in my pocket. I want to draw nearer to the source of their heat. I want to meet the ogres. You were right, Mary told me before she left. I did go to a mission school, and I didn't burn it down. She smiled, a smile of mingled defiance and shame. One of her eyes shone brighter than the other, kindled by a tear. I wanted to cast myself at her feet and beg her forgiveness. Yes, to beg her forgiveness for having pried into her past, or having stirred up the memory of her humiliation. Instead, I said clumsily, well, even Natem Elua spent some time in a cow's anus. Mary laughed. Thank you, brother, she said. She walked away down the path, sedate and upright, and I do not know if I will ever see her again. I imagine meeting a young man in the forest, a man with a necklace of scarlet thread who stands with Mary's light bearing and regards me with Mary's direct and trenchant glance. I look forward to this meeting as if to the sight of a long-lost friend. I imagine clasping the hand of this young man, who is like Mary and like myself. Beneath our joined hands, my employer lies slain. The ogres tear open the tins and enjoy a prodigious feast among the darkling trees. 12. Raka Kabaye Raka Kabaye How beautiful he is, Rakakabaye, a Malagasy demon. He has been sighted as far north as Kismayo. He skims the waves. He eats mosquitoes. His face gleams. His hair gleams. His favorite question is, are you sleeping? Rakakabaye of the gleaming tail. No, we are wide awake. The morning we depart on our expedition, my employer sings. Green grow the rushes, oh, but we, his servants, are even more cheerful. We are prepared to meet the ogres. We catch one another's eyes and smile. All of us sport necklaces of red thread. Signs that we belong to the party of the ogres. That we are prepared to hide and fight and die with those who live in the forest. Those who are dirty and crooked. Resolute, tell my brother his house is waiting for him. Mary whispered to me at the end. Such an honor to be the one to deliver her message while she continues walking, meeting others, passing into other hands the blood red necklaces by which the ogres are known. There will be no end to this catalogue. The ogres are everywhere. 13. Alibai M. Musagi of Mombasa. The porters lift their loads with unaccustomed verve. They set off singing. See Alibai, my employer exclaims in delight. They're made for it, natural workers. Oh, yes, sir. Indeed, sir. The sky is tranquil. The dust saturated with light Everything conspires to make me glad Soon I believe I shall enter the mansion of the ogres And stretch my limbs on the doorstep Of Raka Kayabe
0: So Uh, Welcome to We Will Remember Freedom Uh, It's a, you know Everyone who's listening to this Has just heard your story The Ogres of East Africa And now I hope to talk to you a little bit about that And about your work That's
2: That's great, thank you for having me
0: Yeah Um, First I have to like fangirl a little bit Um, (laughs) I've been telling everyone I think I even came up to you at WizCon A couple years ago and told you this I've been telling everyone for several years now That this is my favorite short story I've ever read Um. Because for me, it hits like just every note that I like, both in terms of um, the the, al- the sort of alternative structure of the story, um, the uh, the my- I'm a sucker for mythology. I'm a sucker for killing colonialists. Um, you know, it, it it all really works perfectly for well, me. Thank you so much. Um, so this was when I started this podcast. This was one of the like stories that I was like really excited to run so um, to, to start I'm wondering if you could talk about we'll talk about the story talk about the overseas of East Africa about kind of the origin of the story um, how it how it came to be
2: yeah Um. so this is a story that um, began in the library of the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, where I was a graduate student And I was just kind of, you know, poking around and browsing in there. I I majored in African languages and literature. So I was often in sort of African studies section looking around. And I came upon this terrible book called A Picnic Party in Wildest Africa. Uh, Do not recommend. Which which had been published, um, I believe it was 1907, because I remember I, I chose that as the date and for the for the story itself so I found this book it was it had been written by an American big game hunter um, and it was it was really terrible it was actually it was it was probably by him it was probably by his wife um, and of course you know it's this very sort of not only um, tourist view of, of Kenya and and Sudan um but also, uh, you know, an extremely, um, an extremely racist view. Um, people and wild animals kind of grouped together and described in the same um, smug, very superior way. Um, and I thought this needs some kind of response. Like I wanted to sort of. Um, riff on that and play with it and mess with it. And that was really um, the the beginning. That was the first thing that was in my mind when I started working on Ogres of East Africa. Now, this story was written, it first appeared in the anthology um, Long Hidden, which was um, a collection of speculative fiction From all kinds of different, you know, I think it was even said from the margins. I'm sorry, I don't remember it completely clearly. Um, But I believe that it was that it had something about about um, margins or speculative fiction from the margins in sort of the title or the concept of um, that anthology and so when I wrote *Ogres of East Africa*, I had that idea in my mind as well. What's happening in the margins? What's happening in the margins of a text like *A Picnic Party in Wild East Africa*? Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a story that was literally, you know, the, the narrator says, "I'm writing this in the margins of the official document."
0: Yeah. Um, did you are the are the myth- are the ogres? real mytho- existing mythology, or is that something that um, you created for the story?
2: Uh, no, the ogres are existing mythology. Um, they came out of of research that I did for the story, which was super, super fun. So I was reading um, folk tales um, from, you know, um, all along the East African coast. There is one that I knew already, um, which is Degderh. And Degder is the Somali ogress, um, really, really famous uh, Somali folk tale. Um, and that one my dad used to tell me when I was a kid. So I knew that story um from my childhood, but cool. the rest of them were really new to me.
0: Well, one of the things that, ok, one of the things I found really interesting about the story was how it plays with kind of what is seen as monstrous by society um mm-hmm. and certainly by what is seen as monstrous by western society because you have this this angle well, it's so nice to be able to do an interview where i can do any spoilers i want because everyone's just listened to it um <laughs> you know where the um the workers are now essentially it's implied that they're kind of becoming the ogres they're you know or they're certainly siding with the ogres in the yeah. future and i was wondering if you had any thoughts about the how how you're playing with what's seen as monstrous
2: yeah, well, I really dig monsters. I love monsters. Um, I I actually published a book last year with my brother, Del Somatar, who's a, a wonderful artist um, called Monster Portraits, which is all about monsters and all about sort of this idea you're talking about of turning around the idea of monsters and um, just looking at them from different angles. Yes, they're terrifying. Um, but that terror is all a matter of perspective. And that, I think, is what makes a monster such a rich kind of image to look at and play with. Uh, and I, in general, my sympathies lie with the monsters, to be honest. I'm usually on the monster's side. <laughs> it's not hard for them to get me on their side. Um, and that, of course, comes out of a perspective you know, which which has to do with um, experience, it has to do with race, it has to do with gender, you know, all, all the kinds of people, groups that I identify with who have been perceived at various times and, and described and written about as monstrous, as inadequate, as, you know, something wrong, something that shouldn't have happened, something that isn't fitting into the category categories in the correct way. Um, So that's a position that I have a lot of sympathy with. And so when I come across creatures in stories that are monsters, I tend to sympathize with them as well. Mm -hmm. And I think every, I mean, I think many stories ask us to do that, right? There are a lot of stories that are, regardless of your your background or your experience, the story is asking you to make that move um, to sort of, you know, a story like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, is, is asking to make that move and to, and to sort of um, make that shift. So in approaching um, Ogres of East Africa, that was, um, yeah, that shift was always something that was going to come. These These creatures are described by the narrator, who is, you know, he's an employee of this hunter. He's not he's not a radical by any means. I mean, he's a guy who's trying to get by. He's trying to make some money. And, um, and he, he begins writing about them in a very kind of distant, I mean, he's composing a catalog, you know, and it's work. Um, and then he's sort of writing about his experience in the margins of the work, but with time and with his, um, encounter with this woman who's telling him the stories, that's where that shift begins to come in. And underneath this um, description of these creatures that are only there to be hunted, not even because they're evil, but really from, from the hunter's view, simply for entertainment, underneath that and in the margins of the catalog, you start to get the idea that, wait a second, this is, these are not just isolated creatures. Mm-hmm. This is There's some Organized
0: about this. I love um, the character of Mary. Is is I mean, well, there's not very many characters in this story, but but Mary really stands out to me. Um, I love when she basically says, "Well, no, if I had gone to a missionary school, I would have burned it down." But then later, she admits that she did go to a missionary school and did not burn it down. And I feel like that's very easy to um, to empathize with uh, in today's society. Um, the the conflict between the sort of knowing the kind of radical actions that are um, potentially justified by by your experiences versus what you actually do. And I think you contrasted that well with the protagonist who goes through a questioning about whether or not he's actually going to go into the bush and, you know, risk dying and, and join the ogres or if he's just going to cut and run.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the mess and the and the difficult position of it for those characters because they have a choice. They're not, you know, they're not the most desperate people. Yeah. They, are, they are educated people. Um, they're not in control of their country or their government, but they have a position that, you know, it, that affords them um, certain protections and privileges. And that's, you know the story is about those kind of in between characters, yeah, who are who have a choice
0: oh, that's that's really fascinating to me because that's like what so many of the conversations I'm having um with my friends and things like that right now kind of look like. not to say that i'm mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say that my experience as a a white uh, colonist in, in America is identical or as what's happening in this story, but just some of the themes seem really interesting to me,
2: absolutely. And those two characters, you know, they don't, you know, I I think that's also part of um, what the story is working with is this idea of you don't have to have the same experience, right? You can see, you can perceive a kind of structural similarity in those experiences, even if they're not exactly the same. And in fact, you have to do that because that's how you're going to build. That's how you're going to build. You you know, you, you can't. If you reduce yourself to only building with people that are exactly like you, uh, you're you're just not going to get very (laughs) far, you know? So those characters have very different experiences, but there are certain things that they have in common, and that's enough. And all of those monsters, every single one is totally different from all the others, but they have that monstrosity in common, and and it's enough.
0: It's funny because that actually beats me to my next question or my next prompt, which was about one of the things that also stuck with me about the story is this, um, the, the colon, the, you know, the hunter, the the colonist is planning on using divisions between the workers, like religious and racial differences, uh, to divide them. And I love the way that your character just kind of like laughs that off. And is just like, no, no, no. Like we're far enough away from home that, you know, we're all on the same side here.
2: Yeah. And the, and for the hunter, you know, he has his ideas, um, very rigid classifications of people, and he's not able, those are hampering him. He's not able to see that, that allegiances um, can shift and that different things can happen. They're in a, yeah, like you said, they're not at home. They're in a completely different setting. Um, and that opens things up for, for, for changes that the hunter can't possibly foresee. For him they're all they're all like creatures that have been written about in the catalog Mm
0: -hmm.
2: they can all be summed up in a few words you know he's got his few little um phrases to characterize each of them and he's satisfied with that and i'll tell you what he is so much nicer than the guy that wrote that book (laughs) it's funny because i think he comes across as this really you know he's he's not a, a guy with a lot of depth in the story yeah. and you know I I think you know I could imagine the criticism that maybe I'm not you know being as fair to this guy or not giving him the kind of interiority that the other characters have but look <laughs> he is like he's a prince compared to the writer of that book you know so I, I sort of feel like yeah I actually he seems terrible but, I, but it's actually I, I think it's quite a generous <laughs> portrait.
0: I can see that um What kind of response has the story gotten?
2: Um, in general, um, it's gotten quite positive responses. I find that a lot of people are, um, as you mentioned, really excited about, um, about the tales themselves, about the folk tales and about these folk figures, these different ogres. And, um, and I, I very often, you know, people are very curious, are they out of my head? Are they out of the library? Of course they are out of the library. Um, there are tales that have been collected and, and that always makes people, yeah, it makes people kind of brighten and go, oh wow, you know, I didn't, this is, um, there's so much material here and this is only, I mean, I really just went down the East African coast, right? There's a lot of, um, and this is stuff that's been collected, by folklorists and anthropologists, and it's been translated, and it's in libraries, you know. So when you think about the wealth of material um, that's out there, it's really it's it's quite um, incredible stories that that people in, in a Western context are not really familiar with. And I think the 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 main thing for me is stories that you can you can find.
0: Yeah that's cool i it it does make me want to look more into this, and specifically the the concept of of the ogre as a as a myth creature is is it's not one I've run across much before,
2: yeah, and I sort of um i i guess there would have been other um words I could have chosen. I could have gone with monster, you know um in a lot of the translations that I read. The word ogre was used, but again, not all of them. I mean, that's another case of sort of saying, all right, these are all different things from all different traditions, but what is something that that they have in common and what's what's a way that that I can sort of, um, what kind of tool can I use to talk about all of these disparate things at the same time? And yeah, ogre was, was what I picked.
0: It works really well with the bringing up the conception of just the monster, you know, an ogre isn't just a monster, it's an ugly humanoid, you know, it's a, which is something uh, that we specifically demonize in our society, mostly, well, racism and patriarchy and all of those things.
2: Yeah. No, that's a good point.
0: Um, I'm curious how you think, this is a sort of broad question. Um, one of the main things that I've tried to, to study is how fiction relates to sort of social and cultural change and, uh, um, and how you see yourself as a fiction writer, um, relating to changing culture and also maybe specifically around, um, conceptions of colonialism or anti-colonialism in, in Africa or, I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to phrase this. I probably should have written it down
2: yeah no, that's okay I think I think I get what you're mm-hmm. saying i mean it's a it's very it's a very complicated question, isn't yeah. it um, i I tend to you know because the thing with with writing or I think the arts in general is that there just aren't any guarantees that that anything is going to happen when you write yeah. something it it um, it's not um a kind of work that is easy to instrumentalize in that you can try but you there're just too many factors you're not sure what's actually going to happen and that of course is one of the reasons that we need it and we love it mm-hmm. i mean we need we need forms of of work that are not necessarily subject to instrumentalization Um, At the same time, if you're writing something and you would like for it to do something, you would like to make a difference with this piece of work, then that becomes a problem, right? Because you don't know, A, is it going to get published? B, is anybody (laughs) going to read it? If they read it, are they going to care? Are they going to get what you're saying? Are they going to, is anything going to happen? Is this going to actually have any effect in the world? And we know that literature does have immense effects on the ways that people think. And then, by extension, the ways that people behave. But there's really no way to predict 100% how that's going to go. And therefore, there's no way for you as a writer to write something and feel like, yes, this is going to make a difference. I always think about um, Karen Joy Fowler, who wrote, um, has written a lot of wonderful things, um, the novel We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. I don't know if you know that one. But it's a, it's a wonderful book. And it's it's written um, in the context of um, it's it's writing about about animals and it's a novel about um, really animal um, experimentation on animals, right? And I heard Karen talking about it one time, and somebody asked her the question, you know, did you write this book to change the way that we um, that we re- relate to animals? And she said, you know, after writing this novel. Um, you know, I, 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 there's no way that I can, that I can claim that this novel is is changing the way people think about animals. But I don't eat meat anymore, and I don't use things that are made of leather. And I thought that was really powerful. Um, that very often, the the thing that you can put your strongest hopes in when you embark on a piece of writing is that it's going to change you, that you are going to be the one um, who has who, who comes out on the other side of that, a different person. Now, if it goes out there and changes things for somebody else as well, that's great. But, um, uh, you know, I uh, it's not something where I would say, well, if you tried mm-hmm. and you transformed and nobody else was changed by this thing or nobody else even read it, then that's a that's a failed piece of work. I would not say that.
0: That's actually, I really like the way you put that. And one of the things that I, I think a lot about, the way fiction affects things, and, and for me as an anarchist, I'm often not trying to put forth a specific political position. I mean, anarchism is a specific political position, but it's not one that tries to force other people to, to share it, you know? And- um, mm-hmm and that's one of the reasons why fiction appeals to me is because it it's um and it usually it's less um uh, it's less pedantic than maybe non-fiction i mean non-fiction doesn't have to be but political theory is often like cut and dry here are some problems here are some potential solutions and one thing i i really like about fiction is it explores things as questions more than specifically giving answers and and yet, I mean, I still look at a story like this, and it it's, to me, this is a, a piece of cultural work that sort of celebrates the monstrous, um, and critiques colonialism and, or sort of laughs at colonial, uh, at colonialism and basically is like the positive thing for this character to do is to lead this man to his death. And, um, and obviously that's a, in, on some level of political statement, even if it's in a, a fantastical setting, but
2: yeah um yeah, I think I, li- I like what you said a lot about um about fiction and sort of, and sort of what it's for, and again, I think that that's we need that so much we need we need the unpredictability of fiction um, we need the unpredictability of the arts, something that is out there, and it is. Uh, it's it's loose. It's a loose energy, and we can't be sure what's going to happen with it. And what does that mean? Well, that means that means mm-hmm. there's no rubric. That means no um, there's no production line, right? There's no there's you know a lot of things that that determine um, our lives in many ways just aren't possible in this area. Um, and that's something. Yeah, you know, you could say you could <laughs> say fiction is a monster in some ways. The quality of monsters as well, right? That's an energy that's out there and you cannot be sure which way it's gonna go. Uh
0: well that's that's the end of my questions, but um I was wondering if you wanted to talk about Oh, I actually have one final one, if that's okay. Um one of my other I haven't I haven't read your novels yet. Um but I um one of the other pieces I read by you that I really liked, I found when I was trying to I was like trying to Twitter stalk you after I read The Ogres of East Africa and I I couldn't because you, you're not on Twitter uh, or, and instead I found this essay yeah. that you wrote about why you're not on social media um, and I am on social media yeah. and I, I question this um, almost daily and if, if you had any interest in talking about why you're not on social media I think that um, I and, and the listeners might appreciate it.
2: Oh, all of you come to my side <laughs> come and live here it's so wonderful <laughs> we'll love it. You will never go back. No, I, um, you know, I uh, sure I, I'm certainly I, I don't mind talking about it at all. Um, and I also would say I've never I've never been like I'm off social media and I'm never, ever going back. I definitely have the door open that if I wanted to go back at at some point, um, sure, I would do that. But, you know, it's been three years and there hasn't been a second where I've been like, oh, you know, I wish that I still was. No. Um, and and that's in spite of the fact that I made a lot of friends on Twitter. I mean, people that I uh, that I'm still in touch with, people who are really important to me and people who would, um, I would consider, you know, people I'm closest to. I met there and I was I, I used to edit a magazine um interfictions uh and wow what a great tool for networking with people for finding writers for you know so- soliciting material for finding interesting people you know um and yet as i i wrote um or was trying to write about in that very strange essay that you're referring to um i just began to have enough questions about what i was participating in and those questions swelled and grew up to a point where i felt like hold on a second i don't understand this i don't get it and i i feel like taking a step back and i feel like observing and thinking by myself rather than participating in this kind of social thing for now that was what I thought when I left and then after I left I was like oh my goodness um I'm taking so much more time with my thinking I'm not in a hurry to respond to you know the news of the day I can take my time and I can think about things um I'm not under pressure to sort of like produce stuff all the time. Um, there's nobody who's like, Hey, you know, we haven't heard from you in 24 hours. Like what's going on? Um, and all of that has become really, really precious to me. I, I really, um, I love it. I love, I love life on the other side. As I um, if there are, if I, if I can say what some of those big questions are that built to the point where I felt like I had to step away. One of the big ones is is a question of, of work, of labor, of the effort that all of these people are doing for free, curating information right we're, we're out there this, there's so much information everybody knows is way too much and can't think and nobody can pay attention to everything and so then there are these people who are on say Twitter which is you know the kind of the one that I used the most um, and they're crafting these amazing feeds i mean people have fantastic twitter feeds right where you go through and you're like this is you know somebody has put somebody has put this together for me somebody has created um, something that is alive and makes sense. And they've taken different bits of all this ocean of information. and, And they've really created something with it. So that person probably has a job. They have other stuff that they're doing. And here they are, you know, working, 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 working for a company that is acting like it's a public space, but is privately owned, like they don't have a they don't, they're not getting anything out of that. You know, that seemed, that seemed to me a little off. That seems like, like why are we all working so hard for these people and making all these beautiful things? And, um, yeah. So there was, that was, that was a part of it that was kind of making me pause. Um, the other part of it was that I just wasn't sure you know, what? what's changed for, to go back to this question of the margins, what we call marginalized people, marginalized identities. You know, it used to be, like I grew up, say, you know, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, thinking, you know, we have to get our voices out there, right? We're not being heard. And you'd be, you know, making photocopies in basements and stapling things together and (laughs) distributing them around various corners and trying to be heard. It was all about trying to be heard. But I feel like in, uh, you know, on social media, it's as if there's been a a shift. I mean, when you're trying to be heard, Mm -hmm. you're not going against the grain by trying to be heard. All people want you to do is talk all the time. Like that's what those companies want you to do. They want, they don't want you to stop talking, please, by all means, be heard. And the dovetailing of the kind of what I had grown up with as a radical impulse of, I need to get my voice out there. And the way that that has dovetailed with these, these gigantic, you know, money-making social media ventures, I just thought that's also weird. Like, why are we such good friends now? There's something weird about
0: that. Oh, that's fascinating. it makes me think and kind of, because a lot of my understanding of Twitter and just social media in general kind of grew out of radical projects like indie media and like, um, (laughs) and even comparing it to zine culture is kind of fascinating and dark because that's also what I come out of. And starting this podcast is actually sort of a continuation of like, well, I want to keep curating fiction for people, but I'm kind of over publishing my own magazine or before that zines and things like that. So, um, uh, something to think about.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The way I felt. And I, and I don't have, I don't have answers on this and that's probably, you know, that's, and besides the fact that it's amazing not to be on social media. Um, the other reason would be that, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't have my answers. I'm not satisfied. I'm not in a position where I can say yes, I, mm-hmm. I think this is, this is good. I want to participate in this. No, I'm not there.
0: Yeah. Um, well, do you have any work that you are currently excited about to, to tell people about?
2: Oh, yes, I do. I have a manuscript that's being rejected in the everywhere.
0: Oh, me too.
2: Um, oh, yay. Um, um yeah, I, I have written something that I hope will appear at, at some point. Um, it is, it's a departure for me because it's not um, speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. It's a hybrid which combines um, fa- um, fiction and history and memoir. And it's based around a historical event, which is the migration of a group of Mennonites... From southern Russia, what's now Ukraine, to Central Asia, what's now Uzbekistan, in the 1880s. Cool. Now, why people are not banging down my door to get this news, <laughs> I don't know.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to hear your own words on We Will Remember Freedom, the guidelines for submission can be found on our website, wewillrememberfreedom.com. I'm a little bit backed up on getting back to people about their submissions, but I hope to get through that. Um, maybe even by the time you hear this. Yeah. And I want to say once again that this podcast wouldn't be possible at all without the contributions of my Patreon supporters. And in particular, I'd like to thank Chris, Nora, Haas the Dog, Eleanor, Kirk, Natalie, and Sam. Thank you all so much. See you next month, and it'll probably even be next month.